Good evening, everybody. It is good to see all of you again. It's good to be here. Um, it's good to be here tonight. Church is good. That's something I feel like I keep rediscovering in this season. And it's good to sit here together and to think about the things of church, to practice the things of church, which are things that stoke the fire of my faith and help me keep holding on to this um, in a difficult season. I don't know if you think about church like that. Honestly, I haven't always thought about church like that. But it's something that I'm learning lately is so deeply, deeply true. And that is that I need this space. I need your company each week to stay centered on what God is doing in me. And even more than that, what he's doing in us. Without it, without this space, I, I tend to spin out in my own directions and, and to get lost. But this ritual, this ritual of word and worship is an anchor. Even better, it's a root that enables me to grow up and to grow out from this one fixed place. I say all of that this evening because I've been thinking a lot about church over the last few weeks. Tonight, we're starting a new series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians, which is one of the letters of Paul that's collected in the New Testament of our Bibles. And this isn't the first time we've done something like this, of course. Over the years, we've taught through many of Paul's letters, including ones to the early churches in Corinth and Colossae and Philippi and Ephesus. And most recently, last year, we taught through his letter to the Romans. And this is common practice in the church, even though these letters are not written specifically to us, because we have long recognized the value in hearing and participating in their conversations about how to better understand and live out Christian faith. Our particular concerns might be different from those of our ancestors, but we can see in their concerns the seeds of our own, and we can learn from the ways that early church leaders like Paul once worked to keep the heart of the gospel in which we have all placed our faith clear. Furthermore, we believe that the tradition which has preserved these letters for the last 2,000 years is a tradition that's directed by the Holy Spirit. And thus it is no accident that these letters have made their way to us. We're supposed to read them, to trust them, and to learn from them. But the reason we have read so many of the other letters of Paul um, before we've gotten around to this letter is because Galatians is different. Galatians is angry at times. Galatians reflects Paul's frustrations with his fellow Christians, who he worries are straying from the good news about Jesus and who he calls fools and slaves here. In order to make his points to them, Paul exaggerates his arguments in this letter and he stretches some of the core teachings of the early church leaders to and even perhaps past their extremes. This letter is passionate and more than that, it's personal. And it feels a bit like eavesdropping on a fight when you read it. An illustration, I've asked you, how many of you have siblings, right? A bunch of you. Do you ever remember awkwardly getting stuck in a room when your parents and your siblings were fighting? 
I remember one famous argument over dinner in the Camacho household where my youngest brother Cullen was a teenager and he was experimenting with being defiant and my dad got mad at him and he said to him, that's it, go to your room, two weeks, no food. It was silly and honestly, reading Galatians can feel a bit like that. And yet, as I said a moment ago, Paul's letter to the Galatians is here. It's in our holy book of Scripture. And we trust that it is also somehow a letter for us. So for the next six weeks, we're going to work through it to the best of our ability. And along the way, we're going to have to do a lot of contextualizing. It's going to be important to try and put ourselves in the places of both Paul and the Galatians as best we can but we're also going to have to work together to read between the lines of the letter too. What is this gospel in which we, like the Galatians, are putting our trust? Where does it come from? What hold does it really have on our lives? And how do we allow it to be our anchor, our root, as Christians seeking to live this whole thing out together as a church family. So if Galatians is an angry letter, the place to start is by asking, what is Paul angry about? We'll actually go into significantly more detail about this in weeks two and three of the series, but the verses which put the problem most succinctly are found in the middle of the letter in chapter three. Paul writes in Galatians 3, 1 through 3, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh. What we can conclude here in these verses is that at some point after Paul left the Galatian community, other teachers came into that community and began to lead it astray. And specifically, it would appear here that these teachers' goal was to add on to the gospel which Paul had initially presented. Now, that gospel, to offer a really quick summary, centered on the incarnation of the one God of the universe in the person of Jesus Christ, who, despite his innocence of all sin, was nonetheless crucified on a cross and in so suffering freely revealed the love and the forgiveness of God for all people. And this love and its power to claim victory over the brokenness of this world is proven beyond doubt by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. To believe in Jesus then is to say yes to God's forgiveness and to accept adoption, no matter who you are or where you come from or what you've done, into the family of God and into what Jesus calls the kingdom of heaven. The beating heart of this good news, of this gospel, the beating heart of it is God's free gift of grace to the world. Because he loves us already, 
He has made a way for us. We don't earn it. We receive it. And this message, this message is especially powerful in communities like Galatia, where there are almost no diasporic Jews and nearly everybody in the community has been converted not from Judaism, but from paganism. And it's this fact, of course, which also helps to explain the problem. Because the Galatians don't have a culture of Jewish belief underneath their understanding of this new gospel Paul is sharing. So what these new teachers in the Galatian community want, what they're there for, is to synchronize this Christian faith with the laws of the Torah or the traditional practices of Judaism. That's their mission. That's their message to the Galatians. You need to connect what you have been taught by Paul to the traditional story of Israel. Jesus was a Jew, they appear to have reasoned. And so Torah offers this practical guide for living like Jesus. And you need this guide because unlike Jewish Christians, you don't have the same basic principles for living in your culture. But Paul, we see here, is adamantly against this. He says, who has bewitched you with this? He asks, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? So what Paul says he's angry about, what Paul says he's angry about is that the Galatians are not acting like the gospel which he shared with them which is the story of the free gift of adoption into the family of God. They're not acting like the gospel is enough. And he's angry that people, these outsiders, are trying to come in and attach new rules to that gospel, to treat that gospel, in fact, like it's an introduction to something else, which is Judaism. And that's not just anything else. That's specifically the very thing which came before the gospel did, which was, in its own way, an introduction to the gospel, to who Jesus is and what Jesus is up to. The story of God and the story of Israel is intended to make sense of Jesus. It's the way that we understand as fully as we can how and why what Jesus says and does matters. And this is why Paul says here and why he's going to keep saying in this letter that Jesus sets us free from the Torah, from the law, because the the law's whole purpose was to make it clear that the brokenness in the world has eaten its way into our very hearts and we need something greater than that law to actually deliver us from bondage to it. So Jesus takes the responsibility of adhering to the law on himself, Paul says. And Jesus fulfills the law by taking it on himself. And then the miracle here, the good news, is that he offers the fulfillment that he worked for to us so that we can have this infinitely easier yoke. We can cling to him, cling to Jesus, and that will be enough. 
We can trust the Holy Spirit, not the law, to refine us and to reshape us, to bring us into alignment with God's desire for us. And the whole time, all the while, we're living already as daughters and sons of God. In one of the commentaries on Galatians that I read this week, the author wrote that the law is like a ventilator and Jesus is like a breath of fresh air. If someone can't breathe on their own, a ventilator is necessary. But if you have been given fresh lungs, if you're breathing clean air, why would you go back to the machine? And so in a nutshell, that's the whole argument of Galatians. You can learn the argument in just three simple words. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. And it's mania to try and add more to him. And so Paul, when he hears about this, is offended by these Judaizers, as he calls them, or or these people seeking to pressure these Gentile Christians to behave more like Jewish Christians. And he's so upset because Paul personally is someone who's utterly amazed and entranced by the power of the gospel on its own. Jesus is enough. Even more than that, Paul would say Jesus is better It's beauty. The gospel's beauty for Paul is in just how radical and overwhelming and incredible it is. And that's because we can remember that Paul was himself once a Pharisee, that Paul was an expert on Jewish customs and laws and Torah. And in his testimony, he is overwhelmed by Jesus on the road to Damascus. And in that moment, he saw his best efforts at self-righteousness utterly dismantled by the righteousness of Jesus. And then from the ruins of his own older faith, he experienced this breathtaking hope and freedom in Christ. And so it's that freedom, that hope, that total transformation of his understanding of righteousness that's at the root of what he preached when he was traveling around. And it's especially what he would preach to people like the Gentiles and especially to Gentiles in places like Galatia because Paul is entirely sold out to seeing this flood of Jesus's grace just sweep over and deliver absolutely everybody. Paul keeps saying that what came before the law was necessary only until Jesus arrived and only so we could see how wonderful Jesus is. And so in that context, for Paul to hear that the Galatians are circumcising themselves, that the Galatians are forcing other ritual observances on themselves, for Paul that must have felt like somebody with a steak dinner on their plate choosing to eat baby food instead. It was a move backwards, or at least it would be, if you had lived like Paul. But of course, the Galatians hadn't. They didn't live like Paul. And this is where I want us to focus for the back half of our time this evening. Because Paul is the one writing the letter, we can see pretty clearly why he is upset. But when we read it, we're left to imagine why the Galatians made the choices that they did. We're left to imagine what was so tempting to them 
about these additions to the gospel. And that's where I want us to, to explore and to focus because I want us to figure out if we are similarly tempted. Now, the word that we often give to the temptation the Galatians faced is legalism. Allow me to offer a personal definition. Legalism is the reduction of our calling to live as Christians to a commitment to behave as Christians. I'll say that again. Legalism is the reduction of our calling to live as Christians to a commitment to behave as Christians. Now, I think we all know that legalism is supposed to be a bad thing, right? But the question is, does it always feel so bad to us? Because I don't think that it does. I joke sometimes that after a decade of preaching here at Revolution, there simply cannot be anything about me that you guys don't already know. But this week, I actually came up with something new. At least, I think it'll be new for some of you. And it's this. I know how to play the cello. I know how to play the cello. That was actually my instrument in school. I played from fifth grade all the way through high school. And technically speaking, I got to admit, I got to brag maybe, I was even pretty good at it. I don't think I could play more than a few notes now, um, though. And the reason that I can't play any more than a few notes now is because when I was 15, I discovered another instrument. I discovered the guitar. And the guitar became the instrument of my passion as a musician. For seven years, I learned how to read music and how to play notes on a cello. But the truth is, I never learned how to play a song I never experienced what the instrument of the cello could do or sensed what I could do to make that instrument sound any particular way. To make a comparison, what I'm saying is that I learned to play the cello legalistically by following the rules of the music that I was given. And here's the thing. There is a lot to love about legalistic playing. From the outside, it sounded good. I felt secure and I felt confident that I knew what I was doing. If I had never picked up a guitar, I would have spent my whole life thinking that this was what playing music was like. But I did pick up a guitar. And even though I make a lot more mistakes when I play it, the guitar has made me much more of a musician. I'm listening to songs when I play them, and I'm trying to figure out how to get this instrument to do what I can sense and hear in my mind that it needs to do. Now that process is a lot scarier than playing the cello legalistically, but here's the thing, it's richer, it's richer. And I think that tension is, is an analog for what's underneath the things that are happening in Galatians. I think underneath it all, the Galatians are people who want to know what to do. I think they're people who want sheet music, and this isn't crazy. So when the Judaizers show up, what's happening is they're selling something to the Galatians that the Galatians are desperate to have, and that is they're selling clarity. They're selling certainty about how to do the good thing that the Galatians are trying to do, which is to follow after Christ. Now, it's hard for Paul 
who had already spent most of his life playing sheet music before discovering his instrument, before discovering the real freedom and joy in Jesus, it's hard for Paul to empathize with them. But we can empathize, I think. Because I think we also get scared of making mistakes. And legalism offers a system. And as a result of that, it offers us this way to see progress in our faith measurably. It gives us a way to feel day in and day out like we're doing good. But what Paul knows and what he so desperately wants to warn the Galatians about here is that the cost of music, the cost of this system is passion. The cost of choosing to turn faith into a fixed set of behaviors, the cost is living in the messiness of being loved by and in return loving Jesus. And for all of its challenges, Paul's desperate for the Galatians to feel this messy and this delightful kind of faith because Paul, of all people, knows what happens when you forget that. I'm going to say this again because it's important. Legalism is tempting because it seems like a concrete plan for being a Christian. But what Paul deeply understands is that concrete plans get in the way of really experiencing Jesus. In the beginning of his letter, Paul writes this. He writes, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, this is a a weird line in the letter because it seems kind of disconnected from his anger at the outside influences on the Galatians. I mean, aren't we all trying to win the approval of God? Isn't that the point of all this? But the key is in the alternative that Paul says here is, is, is the alternative to, to seeking God's approval. It's in the ways that what we are actually doing end up seeking to win the approval of other people. The difference between a legalistic faith and a relational faith is in who we're focused on. In a legalistic faith, a faith that's built around right behaviors, the truth is that your eyes are actually always on your neighbors, not on God. Your eyes are on your neighbors to see if they approve of what you're doing, to see if they even see what you're doing. To go back to the cello example, musical legalism kept me focused not on the music, it kept me focused on pleasing the conductor and on beating my peers for first chair. But in a relational faith, your focus is entirely, even blindingly, on the one you love. Your focus is on the song, even if you make mistakes. So what Paul's asking here is he's asking us to consider who our behavior pleases, who our behavior is for. Under the old system of the law, you could only love and serve God by proxy through this medium of rule following and ritual. And that means 
that as you're seeking to follow God, your eyes are constantly looking around you to see if you're on what your neighbors think is the right path. But Paul's challenge is to try and remind the Galatians that Jesus is better than that. That rule following and rituals are things that can be responses to this real and personal delight that you can feel in being loved and known by God directly. Now this feels super nuanced, I know. But I'm convinced tonight that it still matters for us. Here's here's why. We have been separated from so many of the rituals, so many of the habits and rules of our faith over the last few years. Now that we're gathering together again, I want you to be here. And and more than that, I want you to be disciplined in your spiritual lives and, and in your commitments. I want you to pray every day. I want you to be more radically generous with your time. I want you to be more radically generous with your finances. I want you to volunteer. I want you to serve in the community of Annapolis. I want you to build relationships with your neighbors. I want you to build relationships with your coworkers. I want you to love your spouse better. I want you to love your kids better. I want you to volunteer. I want you to clean up litter on the weekends. I want you to buy more ethically produced goods. I want you to recycle, to run for county council. I want you to adopt a pet. But we can't build those behaviors back with legalism, as tempting as it would be. Which is to say, I can't just sit up here and tell you those things every week, give you orders to do those things every week. And the reason is because we have been given this once-in-a-generation chance to rediscover our first love and to build a living faith around it, a relational faith. We can't finish by means of the flesh. So our challenge then is to stay in the messiness of the mystery of God's affection for us. To let it swallow us up. To be overwhelmed by the reality of a God madly in love with his creation. If we can let ourselves rest in that wonder, it won't be long before we realize something truly amazing, which is that we're not alone here. That there are other people just as loved by God all around us. And what will glue us together with each other is not some sort of church constitution or some revision to the mission statement that we all agree to adhere to. What will glue us together is the kinship of siblings who find themselves in the same house at the same table. What will glue us together is the kinship of musicians who find themselves in the same band. I love you guys. And I want to follow after our Savior with you. I said at the beginning tonight that these Saturday night services have become an anchor, have become a root in my faith. What I mean 
is that knowing that I had this space to come back to each week where I am first pressed to feel again God's affection for me. And then I'm given opportunities in our liturgy to respond to that affection with my friends. That process keeps me close to the kind of relational faith that Paul wants for the Galatians. It keeps me from turning things into a checklist of good behaviors throughout my week. Honestly, it keeps me from drifting away altogether. And it accomplishes all of that in this way that also brings me back into relationships with all of you. A way that brings us all back to the table. A way that reminds us that going it alone is never what God wants for us. And that's a big part of the reason that God makes certainty so hard for us to find. If we could find it, we'd hold it, we'd cherish it, we'd worship it, and we'd do all of that alone. But instead, we're called to feel and experience and share love over and over again. First, his love for us. And then right behind it, our love for each other. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for being a part of this church. Thank you for loving me and loving my family. May we chase after a relational faith together. There's no other way. I'll pray for us as we close.